The sermon text for this morning is uh, Joshua chapter 22. And as you uh, noticed in our uh, readings, that's an account that illustrates the importance of church unity, uh, illustrates how quickly our unity can uh, be disrupted or even ruined by something as simple as a misunderstanding. We know that for a long time, the tribes of Israel were united together as a nation, and they were united together in fighting against the inhabitants of Canaan, the Canaanites. And the tribes of Israel knew that they had to work together in order to oppose the nations. God had uh, given Israel the promise of the land. He was giving it to Israel as an inheritance, just as he had promised Abraham. And Israel knew that they had to fight together against the Canaanites as the one people of God. But in Joshua chapter 22, we read about how after having gained the land, gained the inheritance, they were no longer fighting the enemies from without, but they were now beginning to fight from within against one another. Seems like you know, once they had inherited the land, everything should have been peaceful. Everything should have been good. But that wasn't the case. The story that is before us in Joshua chapter 22 is a reminder that sin is always with us. That uh, though Israel uh, defeated her enemies from without, the Canaanites, Israel was nearly defeated by the enemy within, by their own sinful overreaction. And, you know, we see this in the church today, don't we? That there is a danger from without... Uh, that the church today is persecuted by people who hate God and his word, and sometimes that persecution is violent. But far more often, loved ones, we see that there's danger from within, that it's the infighting and the conflicts and, and the quarrels within churches and, and within denominations that can weaken the church of Christ and oftentimes weaken it even more than external persecution does. It's this infighting and this sinful tendency that turns us against each other, each other who we are instead to be the brothers and sisters that we are in Christ. And there are several uh, practical applications that we learn from Joshua chapter 22 about how we are to guard against the conflict and the division that can have dangerous consequences if uh, they are not dealt with biblically. We first see in our passage this morning the rumor that caused this division. The chapter begins with uh, Joshua's commendation of the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh because uh, they followed through on their promise to help Israel conquer the land of Canaan. You might recall in Numbers chapter 32, that as Israel was wandering toward the promised land, wandering from Egypt toward the promised land, these tribes, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they went and they asked Moses if they could live east of the Jordan River, outside of the boundaries of the promised land. Apparently, it was good land for their livestock, Moses, we know, agreed to their request with the understanding that 
when it came time for Israel to conquer Canaan, the fighting men from Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh would still join to help them. Moses made sure that, hey, just because you have your land here east of the Jordan doesn't mean that when it comes time to fight against the Canaanites that you're going to leave us to fight on our own. The tribes agreed to what Moses requested. They said in Numbers 32, we are your servants and, and we will do as the Lord has commanded. We will cross the Jordan into Canaan fully armed to fight for the Lord. But our property will be here on this side of the Jordan. What were they agreeing to? You see that they were agreeing to help Israel fight against the Canaanites. And that's exactly what they did. These tribes, tribe of Gad and Reuben and Manasseh, they sent 40,000 soldiers to help the rest of Israel in the fight against the Canaanites. Though these tribes were settled and comfortable, they honored their oath to Moses and to God. And they joined the other tribes in doing what the Lord commanded them. And now in Joshua 22, and in our text for this morning, uh, Joshua, the leader of Israel, he commended them for keeping the promise that they made. Uh, We read in verses 1 through 4, At that time Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, and you have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Now here we don't have an exact time for how long these men were away from their families, but it appears that they spent several years in battle for the land of Canaan. And so Joshua, even as he commended them for their help for uh, keeping their promise to Moses, he also gave them a solemn warning to remain faithful to the Lord as they live on the other side of the Jordan River. Joshua said to them, beginning of verse 5, Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. We see that even though the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh even though they were separated from the rest of Israel by this geographic um, thing, which was the Jordan River, even though they were separated by this, Joshua was emphasizing that we are still the one people of God. We are still to be united in worship of the one true God. And as a result, even those tribes who were separated from the tribes west of the Jordan needed to remain faithful to the Lord in order that they together, as the one people of God, would experience God's covenant blessings. So these tribes, we read about how they departed. They went back home. The fighting men went. We read, beginning at verse 9, so the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, 
their own land of which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. And, you know, it would be great if at this point we could just end and say, and they lived happily ever after. But that's not what we read in Joshua chapter 22. We read instead that shortly after this, after they departed, these tribes nearly went to war, civil war, because of a misunderstanding. Because the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they were heading back to their homes, they decided to stop along the way in order to, as we read, build an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. So it wasn't just a little dinky altar. It was big. It was massive. It was actually visible from the west side of the Jordan River. You know that an altar in the Old Testament, it was a place where God was worshipped and sacrifices were offered. We know that Noah, after the flood, and thankfulness and gratitude to God for preserving him and his family, we read that he built an an altar to God and he offered sacrifices to God upon it. And Abraham also, we read about how he built an altar and he was going to offer his own son as a sacrifice according to God's command until God stopped him and instead provided a ram that Abraham might sacrifice instead. So we see in the Old Testament how altars were built by godly people, but when the tabernacle was built according to what God instructed Moses and the priesthood was established in the book of Exodus, that tabernacle was now the place where sacrifices were to be offered. We read in Leviticus chapter 17, there it says that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, any one of the house of Israel who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, does not bring it to the tabernacle to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. God there instructing Moses and Israel that now the tabernacle has been established and it's to be the place of worship and sacrifice. And so the Israelites were no longer allowed to build random altars in order to offer worship and sacrifice to the Lord. And this was by design. This was by design because the Lord knew the tendency of his people to fall into idolatry. This was uh, specifically designed by the Lord to prevent Israel from making sacrifices and offering worship to false gods. Uh, Dale Davis, Old Testament scholar, he explains, uh, the restriction of sacrifice to one sanctuary was preventive theology. It was intended by God to preserve the purity of worship. To oversimplify, it meant one altar at the tabernacle, one faith, one people. So when in Joshua chapter 22, when the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, when they built an altar of imposing size, big enough again to be seen from the other side of the Jordan, they built this altar, the other tribes immediately became concerned. They thought that this altar was built in order to promote idolatry. It was built in contradiction to what God had commanded, that it was an altar to the false Canaanite gods and that it would ultimately lead Israel 
to experience covenant curses rather than covenant blessings. We read about this beginning of verse 11. The people of Israel heard it and said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan, the region about the Jordan, on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. You see here, loved ones, how quickly a rumor, mere rumor, they heard of it, can escalate into serious conflict. These, these tribes who had moments ago been united in, in the Lord and in doing his will and fighting and won against the Canaanites, they were, we see, at the very next moment ready to go to war against each other because of a misunderstanding. They merely heard about what the Reubenites, Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh did, and they were ready to go to war with them. And this is where we see, loved ones, the problem with their reaction. It's the second point in the sermon outline. That we can say that for the Western tribes, the motivation behind their reaction was good. The motivation that they had in, in fearing what the Eastern tribes had done, at root, it was good. Why did they want to go to war against the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh? It's because they feared the Lord. They feared the Lord's judgment on them because of the eastern tribes' disobedience. And so we see that this, a delegation was sent. It was headed by Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, with representatives of all the ten tribes. And, and they were going to see what was really going on behind the building of this altar, what the purpose of it ultimately was. We read that this delegation in verses 15 through 20 came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh and the land of Gilead, and they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor from which even Yet we have not cleansed ourselves, and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord. And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over it into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things? And wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel. And he did not perish alone for his iniquity. So this delegation feared the Lord's angry judgment or what they believed was covenant disobedience. What they believed was these two and a half tribes breaking God's covenant law. And they gave two examples from Israel's history in which a small group within Israel uh, sinned against the Lord. And 
all of Israel, as a result, suffered the consequences. The first example the delegation mentioned was the sin at Peor, described in Numbers chapter, chapter 25. Numbers chapter 25, in that instance, some in Israel worshipped Baal, as the Canaanite god, and as a result, 24,000 Israelites died by a plague that the Lord brought about. So these tribes were still fearing what God had done in judging his people's sin. A second example mentioned uh, is that of Achan. You may remember, remember that Achan took some of the devoted things when Israel conquered Jericho. God had commanded that Israel destroy everything in Jericho except for the precious metals which were to go into the treasury of the Lord. And we know that Achan, he took some of the devoted things and he hid them in his tent. And as a result of his sin, he suffered, his family suffered, and many in Israel suffered as Israel lost its next battle against the city of Ai. See, these incidents were still very fresh in the hearts and minds of the people of Israel, and they fear that this altar of imposing size, if it's not destroyed, if we don't take action against the sin in our midst, God's wrath is going to fall upon us again. And so the motivation behind the reaction was good. They were seeking to live according to the covenant worship the Lord according to the way that God had instructed them. So the problem was not in their motivation, but the problem was instead in the fact that they all too quickly imputed bad motives to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. See, the problem was that they immediately assumed the worst about their fellow brothers. One moment, they were fighting together against the Canaanites, united in their love for the Lord, and the next moment, they were ready to turn on each other as they gathered at Shiloh to make war. This, sadly, still happens in the church today. You know, we live in a a culture of outrage. We live in a culture in which uh, people are hyper-reactive to rumors. I'm sure that you've noticed that. And People in our culture usually impute the worst possible motives before investigating the truth behind what they hear. Brothers and sisters, we need to be careful that we don't do this in our church. Ironically, today we have so many forms of communication. We can call, we can tweet, we can text. We can email, we can post on Facebook. So many forms of communication, more than any in all of history, and yet we still miscommunicate. Why is that? It's because of sin. Brothers and sisters, let us remember that our tendency to react in anger is sinful. Let us also remember that one of the tactics that Satan uses against us is to try to divide us. Satan loves to bring disunity in the church. Think, for example, way back to the Garden of Eden, to our first parents. In what condition did God make Adam and Eve? 
Children, many of you know the answer from the children's catechism. God made Adam and Eve holy and happy. In Eden, Adam and Eve were holy and happy. Their relationship with God was perfect. Their relationship with one another was perfect. No arguments, no sin, no anger. And you know who can stand it? Satan. Satan couldn't stand it. And so what did he do? He introduced discord between our first parents and God. And even discord between Adam and Eve. And so when Satan cannot attack the church from without, he seeks to divide us from within, to bring about disunity and discord, be it in families, in relationships, in churches, and even in denominations. You know, if we think back, loved ones, to the last few arguments that we've had with fellow Christians, I want you to think about what was the cause of those arguments? How could we have uh, reacted better? Was your and my reaction based on what we thought the other person did? Was it based on a fiction or on some wrong motive that you imputed upon the person? Were we justified in our reaction? We need to remember, loved ones, that Christ has united us together in himself. We are in union with Christ and with one another. And that's the spiritual reality that we experience as a church. And what we need to do is to strive to maintain that unity, not to attain it, because he's already accomplished it through the cross, but to maintain it. The Apostle Paul explains in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, who you, were, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. And then uh, jumping to verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. So now in Christ and united as a church, loved ones, we are called to live in unity, in the unity that Christ has already created. This doesn't mean that you know, we need to be pushovers and, and not, um, not interact with brothers and sisters when they are in error, but we are to be peacemakers. We are to be eager to seek peace and, and resolution when there are conflicts and misunderstandings. You know, Jesus prioritized unity and, and reconciliation in his church. He teaches in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. He says, If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. We see the priority that Jesus places upon unity and reconciliation. And he even gave us instructions on how to seek this sort of peace. In Matthew chapter 18, beginning at verse 5, he explains how 
we are to deal with brothers and sisters whom we are in conflict with. He says, in verse, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Dear loved ones, in both of these texts, the Lord Jesus puts the ball in our court to actively seek peace with one another, to maintain the unity that he has created by his death and resurrection. Well, in our text this morning, we see how, by the grace of God, a potential uh, civil war among the people of God was averted. We read about the resolution in verses 21 and following. The tribes met together to resolve this conflict, and the issue was immediately cleared up when they started talking. Joshua 22, beginning of verse 21, then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, the mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows. And let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, uh, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord, so your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, not for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings so your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought, if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings, not for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. To clarify, it's not intended to be an altar of sacrifice. We see how they repeated it over and over. It's not a display of idolatry, but it's an altar of witness. It's actually a memorial to the unity that we have as tribes united under one God. We see how quickly the conflict was resolved through biblical resolution. Friends, conflicts will arise among us. It will arise because of the difficulty of communication, be it between husbands and wives, parents and children, between church members. But the heart of the matter is how we handle those conflicts when they arise. Is there someone that you need to seek to make peace with? 
with a brother or sister in the family of God. Now this table reminds us of the unity that we have in Christ. It reminds us that Jesus, who is the greater Joshua, he has united us, not just like 12 tribes descended from Israel, but he has united people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. We have that unity in Christ by the Spirit. Let us therefore strive to maintain our unity in the bond of peace. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the peace that we have with you through Christ's atoning work. That we are no longer your enemies, but we are your children. Grant that this peace would work itself out in our relationships with one another. Cause us, we pray, to seek to be peacemakers, to live at peace with one another, and to seek to give you glory and honor by the way that we relate to one another. We thank you for our church, for our friendships, for the opportunities you give us to laugh together and to cry together and to worship together. We are so blessed and we give you glory and praise for such loving kindness. Bless us now, we pray, as we partake of this spiritual feast before us. Prepare our hearts and minds so that we might receive Christ in a worthy manner, for it's in his name that we pray.